Romans 3.1 down to verse 20. You'll find that on page 940 in the church Bible if you're using that. And as usual, I would tell you that you will find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open, reading along with me this morning. And before we do read God's Word, let's again go to Him in prayer and let's pray together that He would bless um, bless this congregation as His Word is proclaimed this morning, that He would help us to receive it with meekness and fear and keep His Word and hide it in our hearts and believe it. Let's pray. Our God, we do call on You again, Lord of heaven and earth. You are the God who spoke and created the worlds by the word of your power, and you are the God who has spoken and recreated us through your Son, Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection and by the word of your grace. And so we ask that, Lord, you would make us to know this morning the word of your grace, that you would even cut to the heart that we might know more of our need for Christ, that you would help us to receive every word that has been breathed out of your mouth, that we would receive it with faith and with humility and with repentance and with love. We pray that you would make us to see and to hear the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We pray that you would change us by this, Lord, that you not leave us um, in the same spiritual condition in which we came, but that we would be drawn to the Lord Jesus and build up in him and that we would be conformed to his image. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Romans 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, for the sake of context, again, I would say that the Apostle Paul has been leveling charges against all men. In chapter 1, the irreligious. In chapter 2, the religious, the hypocrite, the one trusting in his religiosity and his good works. He is continuing that argument here into chapter 3 and still dealing with the unbelieving Jew who is trusting in his Jewishness and his uh, religious external um, privileges and in his um, identity as a Jew, Paul now says in verse 1, what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law 
comes the knowledge of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I don't know if you have ever heard the old adage, nobody likes a lawyer until they need a lawyer. But in a very real sense, the passage before us is going to make some people want to say, nobody likes an apostle until they realize that they need an apostle. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul here is at his best, and the Apostle Paul is here at his most difficult. The Apostle Paul, as he has been taking on the self-justifying attempts, the, the, the arguments that are pouring out of the mouths of the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Jesus, and Paul is taking up that argument in a very real sense, Paul is acting like a lawyer. He's acting like a lawyer, and he's standing in a courtroom, and interestingly, his first move is not to turn to the condemnation of men, but his first move here in Romans 3 is to, to, as a lawyer, defend the justice and the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. And so God is vindicated here in Romans chapter 3 and all of his truthfulness and justice and all of his faithfulness, and man is condemned. And Paul is standing there in the courtroom, and what's interesting about this, and you don't want to miss this, is that Paul includes himself in this. So lest you take up the adage, nobody likes an apostle, I don't like what the apostle's saying, I don't like how he's saying this, remember that Paul includes himself in this, and that Paul will gloriously bring this to a climax with that mirror that all of us are called to look into when he says, all have sinned, all are under sin, no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Well, we want to see three things this morning. First, we want to consider the faithfulness, truth, and justice of God vindicated. And then secondly, we want to consider the sinfulness, depravity, and condemnation of men. And then finally, we want to consider the law court evidence, as it were. We'll notice there that Paul, as he continues on in that argument against the Jews that he started in chapter 2, and he is anticipating arguments. He is, in a sense, playing prosecutor and defender, and he's going back, and he's throwing arguments out, and he's answering them, and he's running back over here, and he's throwing another argument out, and he's answering it. And Paul essentially is, is raising the objection that a Jew who was listening might say, well, Paul, are you saying that we're not better than anybody else? Are you saying that there was nothing special about the Jewish nation in the Old Covenant? That there was nothing special about the covenant people? And Paul's saying, no, I'm not saying that. Paul says, first, you had the word of God. That was what was special. It's special when God entrusts his revelation to a people. It's special when you get to hear the truth of God. And then Paul um, anticipates another objection. And that objection, I think, runs like this. You might hear a Jew say, well, Paul... You emphasize faith so much. You keep saying it's the righteousness by faith. It's not what we do. It's by faith. It's by faith. It's by faith. But the Bible everywhere says the God who has spoken to us, he's faithful. And it's more about the faithfulness of God than it is about our faith, Paul. It's more about God has said, I'm going to do this. And it's more about his faithfulness. What about that, Paul? And notice as Paul begins now to vindicate God who is really being put in the dock, as C.S. Lewis said, God in the dock, God on trial. Men love to put God on trial. Um, it's one of the most sobering thoughts that I have as a minister, and hopefully you have as a Christian, is that the God who made all things, who gives life and breath and all things to all men, who makes the sun to shine on the godly and the ungodly, who sends the rain on the just and the unjust, 
who makes the rain to fall and the earth to bring forth in bud and provides food for every living creature and who is sovereign over every molecule and who is infinitely holy in all of his perfection should be put on trial by sinful man. That he is put on trial by sinful man. And notice that as Paul now goes and rushes forward to vindicate God, notice this, that he says in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true and everyone a liar. Now, there's a very compact argument. It's a very difficult argument. Paul is essentially saying it's possible that somebody could say God has not been faithful because all these Jews haven't believed. All these people through all these thousands of years who heard the word of God, it went in one ear and right out the other. They weren't changed. They didn't believe. They didn't trust in the Redeemer. They rejected him. They crucified him. Has God been unfaithful? Has God's faithfulness failed? And Paul says, by no means, notice verse four, let God be true and everyone a liar. Now, Paul is going to level one of the most philosophical arguments in the Bible here. And it's important that we get this. Paul is essentially going to say, if a man or a woman is unbelieving and they live in unrighteousness, because that's what unbelievers do, live in unrighteousness, that unrighteousness actually proves the righteousness of God by way of negation. He's actually going to say, yes, God promised redemption to people. He made large covenant promises, but God also promised that he would be just in the damnation of people who don't believe. So the Bible is both about salvation and damnation, and God has promised that he is going to show forth all of his righteous wrath and all of his anger on the day of judgment, and that man's sin, even now, all the rebellion in the world, all the depravity, all the rejection of God, all the unrighteousness, all the things that we as believers hate, that we once loved them, all of those things just go to further magnify the righteousness of God. And on Judgment Day, they're really going to magnify it. God's going to get all kinds of praise for being the perfectly righteous judge of all the earth. Paul's actually going to pick up on this in Romans 9. Turn there with me. Romans 9, very interesting, verse 21, talking about why some believe and why some don't. And and Paul goes into that, does not the potter have power over the clay? You know, we're all just lumps of clay. And God forms one for salvation and one for damnation. He makes one for glory and one for condemnation. And and how can he do that, Paul says? Picking up on that question. And notice, notice verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, let me say this this morning, this is a hard word. There's a holy wrath that God wants to show against all unrighteousness. There's a whole, God wants to show wrath. The holy God wants to show his wrath. Paul says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, picking back up on Romans 3, what Paul's saying to people who are rejecting Jesus, who deserve that wrath because they're rejecting the only one who can save them from that wrath, is saying all of their unrighteousness is just going to magnify the righteousness of God more. It's just going to show that he is the righteous one. By way of contrast, it's only going to make him look holier and better and more glorious in all of his infinite perfection and justice. And it's right that God is just. What kind of judge would let guilty people 
just off the hook. An unjust judge. God is a righteous God. God is a holy God. God magnifies his righteousness. And notice what Paul says in Romans 3. Does the the faithfulness of unbelievers nullify the faithfulness of God? No. Let God be true and everyone a liar. Now notice this, verse 5. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. There it is. Our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. By way of contrast, what shall we say is God unjust to inflict wrath? So essentially, an unbeliever could say, well, how's that fair? How's that, how's that fair that God can inflict wrath on people uh, because if, it's, if it's making his righteousness look bigger and better before men? How is that fair? How is that right that God can send people to hell if it's benefiting in a sense? And that's a very wicked argument because nothing benefits God. But somebody might say, this, well, this is benefiting God. This is making God look more righteous, Paul. So, so God's unjust if he punishes people in hell, if their unrighteousness is just making him look better. It's complicated, I know. You've got to go back and you've got to work through this and you've got to study this. It is complicated, but it's rich. Notice what Paul does. Paul does one of the most wonderful and brilliant things ever. He goes back to the man after God's own heart, David. He goes back to the Israelite of Israelites in the Old Testament. And he says, look, you should know this. Remember, David commits adultery. David murders one of his best friends, a mighty man. And when God finally grants him repentance, and David realizes the heinousness of his sin against the righteousness of God, in Psalm 51, notice there, Paul quotes it in verse 4, David, when he confesses his sin to God, he says against you and you only have I sinned that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, what David is saying is that even his sin magnified the truthfulness and righteousness and justice of God. David's not saying it was good that he sinned. He's not saying I don't need to repent of my sin. David's saying that even my sin goes to further enhance and promote the truthfulness and the justice of God. David says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so God's on trial. God's on trial before the unbelieving world. And Paul says, oh, my friends, God in all of his faithfulness and righteousness and truthfulness is not subject to scrutiny of men. Notice verse 4 that he says there in that little phrase, let God be true, though every man is a liar. Let God be true. That's the one stable thing we have in life. You realize that. Um, Your spouse can lie to you. Your boss can lie to you. Your coworkers can lie to you. Your friends can lie to you. You can lie to all those people. There is one stability in life, and that is let God be true, even if everyone's a liar. And the one thing that we can know and be assured of is that everything God has spoken is absolutely and undeniably true. John Calvin actually gives this great quote about let God be true here in verse 4. He says, this is the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. This is the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy, that God is true. And that means you can take everything God has said 
in the scriptures and you take it at face value and you take it for what it is and you know that he doesn't change and you know, and, and for us, and this is the good news for believers and Paul's going to get here through the rest of the book, for us that means everything God has said about Jesus is true and that Jesus came and said, I am the truth. And that everything that God has promised to fulfill in the Old Testament for your salvation and my salvation is fulfilled in Jesus. Let God be true and every man a liar. And even if the whole world rejects it and all your friends reject it and you're swayed and you're pulled to reject it because your friends reject it, let God be true and every man a liar. And that is the absolute foundation of Christianity is the axiom of all true Christian philosophy. It is the anchor for us. And yet, in this context, Paul is defending the righteousness of God and the justice of God, and that, as Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon on this, God is glorified in man's judgment. Notice there, um, Paul answers these series of rhetorical questions in verse 6 with as strong a force as he can, by no means, or God forbid, how then could God judge the world? And notice... In verse 7 and 8, Paul is now taking up an argument against himself that in all that he's saying, in all that he's saying, some might say, if I threw my lie, cause God's truth to abound, why am I condemned as a sinner? If everything's working, let me break this down as easy as I can. If everything is working in a fallen world the way it's supposed to work, because everything is working in a fallen world the way it's supposed to work in a fallen world. You have to think about that. It's not working like it's supposed to work. In an unfallen world, it's working the way it's supposed to work in a fallen world. If everything's working the way it's supposed to work in a fallen world, then how can God be just to condemn anybody to hell? If God's purposes and his righteousness and all of those things are, are working themselves out just the way he wants them to, how can God be just to damn anybody to eternal destruction? And Paul says, some actually say that in teaching the gospel, and verse 8 is a complicated verse, notice there, some charging Paul on, on this teaching, why not do evil that good may come? Now, I think what lies behind verse 8 is really the unbeliever hearing the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He's hearing that God justifies ungodly people by faith alone, that God doesn't take into account any of your good works. He takes all your bad works, and he sends his son, and his son provides all the righteousness you need, and his son takes the wrath that you deserve. And he's going to come to that in chapter 3, verse 21 and following. And, and the unbeliever hears that, and he's saying, okay, then, Paul, why not just keep doing sin that good may come? Because you're saying justifications by faith alone. You're saying God is glorified even in man's rebellion. You're saying everything's working out the way it should. Um, why not do good? Why not do evil that good may come? And notice what Paul says there. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, I can take a breath because that is a tough section. I want you to go back and revisit that. Think about those things. Meditate on those things. Paul now turns, Paul now turns, secondly, in the law court to expose the sinfulness, depravity, and condemnation of men. It's interesting, isn't it, that if you take Romans 3, 1 through 9, 1 through 8, and then 9 through 20, if you take them as two sections, um, everything is turned backwards. You have fallen men basically putting God on trial when it's fallen men who should be on trial. God shouldn't be in the dock. You're in the dock. 
And what Paul does is he, he disarms all the arguments, all the, all the objections that fill the mouths of men and the hearts of men, all the objections, all the self-justifying. Because that's what people do. At the end of the day, everybody is trying to self-justify themselves before God. I want to read to you something um, Ray Ortland said I found very powerful. And considering what we're about to look at here in the rest of this passage, Ortland says, Every one of us is ungodly and we know it. We have failed to be the people we ought to be. And that deep sense of unease about ourselves, that's, that's why we live in denial, isn't it? Isn't cover-up the self-righteous strategy of every guilty conscience? Isn't that why we compulsively blame others? Man, that hit me hard. Isn't it why we compulsively blame others? Because we're just trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Trying to self-justify ourselves. So we blame others. Finger-pointing finger pointing is just a form of self-justification. And what lies behind that is our own uneasy conscience. I thought that was a very convicting and very powerful statement. And what Paul is going to do now is he's going to hold up the worst mirror you could ever look in. He's going to hold up the worst mirror you could ever look in, and he's going to say to you, please have the courage, please have the humility to stand and see what you really look like. And you know, it's interesting to me, the mirror he's about to hold up is the most uncomfortable mirror in the whole Bible. It's the most uncomfortable mirror. I think I've told you this. I don't like looking at myself in the mirror. I don't like what I see in the mirror often. Maybe you don't like what you see in the mirror. There is a rightness about not liking what we see in the mirror that Paul holds up in Romans 3. But this mirror doesn't lie. This mirror is an accurate reflection of what you look like and what I look like. And notice what Paul says here in verse 9. And, and I think it's, it's, there's a sweetness here because Paul has a sensitivity um, I'm sure, in a sense, it's painful for Paul to write this. I don't think Paul enjoyed writing the hard things. I don't think Paul got, it, got his kicks from writing the hard things the way we see a lot of conservative political commentators getting kicks on saying the conservative things. I think Paul understood that he was, he was part of this, too, that this was true of him, too, that in order to get to the good news, Paul had to go through this. Paul had to look in that mirror himself. He had to hold that mirror up himself. Notice he slides into first person almost unperceptibly in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. We have charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And so Paul is now saying, okay, let's bring all of this to a culmination. I've dealt with Gentiles. I've dealt with Jews. Here's the point. Jews and Gentiles, everybody's under sin. Nobody's on a better standing. The person that you like to look down on and despise, you are just as evil and wicked as them. Whoever it is, whoever it is, I will say that as emphatically as I can say that this morning. Whoever you despise, you are just as wicked as they are. And I know that because Paul holds up the mirror to all of humanity and he, sa and he turns the mirror, as it were, on the whole world full of people and nobody escapes the reflection. And he says there are none righteous no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. You know, it's interesting here at this beginning of Paul's exposing the sinfulness and depravity of men that he gives these general terms. He starts with the general. He says there's none righteous. That's a big general term. You don't get to claim partial righteousness. You don't get to say I'm a pretty good person. There are none righteous. 
No, not one. And then Paul says, there are none who understands. There's no real spiritual understanding in the natural man. Natural man doesn't understand the things of God. He doesn't get them. Um, You know, I have in my pastorate had just a few occasions where I'd have people come up to me after I preached and said, you know, I didn't really understand what you said. And it was kind of over my head. And as I thought about that over the years, yes, there are times that maybe I could preach over someone's head. I think more often than not, it's because it wasn't in their heart. It wasn't in their hearts. Men by nature do not understand. There are none righteous. There are none who understand. There are none who seek God. I come across people who, by their lives and their um, professions, the fact that they're not um, bound together with God's people in worship, they, they are not living for the Lord, there's, there's no good fruit on the tree, and yet they tell me, maybe because I'm a pastor, very frequently, well, I say my prayers at night. That's not seeking God. That's not seeking God. By nature, no one seeks him. No one pursues him with the whole of their life. No one calls on him as they ought. Nobody, Jew or Gentile, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Notice verse 12. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. Listen, this is, this is not in any sense whatsoever a, you're really great, God really thinks highly of you, and wants you to just maximize your gifts kind of sermon. The Bible says, all have become worthless. When Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, goes to consider um, his own righteousness, he actually says, all our, all our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. They're like filthy rags. Paul will actually say that his righteousness was like dung in Philippians 3. It's like dung. All the... All the attempts people do to do good things and to try to justify themselves before God, it's, it's worthless. Notice what Paul says. No one does good, not even one. All of Adam's descendants, all of us. Now, somebody could come back and they could say, well, wait a minute. I know lots of people that don't know Christ, that are good people. They do good things. They're philanthropists. They help people. They give their money. They open their homes. They took in these orphans. They do this. They do that. They do this. If you ask them, and you could get an honest answer from them, if you asked those people, and were those people by nature, but whoever, if you asked them, why do you do all these things? And they could give you an honest answer because they weren't suppressing the truth. They would say, because I'm trying to justify myself before God, because I'm trying to merit righteousness on my own. They would never say that. The why is what they never tell you. All the, all the good things people do, they never tell you the why. And the why would never be for a natural man because God is the God who has made me and redeemed me in Jesus Christ and I want to honor him and bring him glory and I want to serve him and I want to bless his people and I want to bless others and I want to see his name magnified in the earth and I want him to get glory. Now a Christian can say that. A Christian can say that. But nobody, nobody, if you could get the honest answer about the why they're trying to do good things, would ever tell you 
the right why because they're not doing it for the right why. And so in that way, it's not a good work. It's a self-pleasing, self-justifying attempt to hold down the arguments of God, to suppress the truth of the scriptures, to suppress the truth of themselves, to step to the side of the mirror that Paul's holding up and say, please look in this mirror and see what you are by nature. Notice that Paul then goes on in verses 13 through 18 to sort of give an anatomy of depravity. And notice very quickly, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Basically, Paul wants to say, categorically, somebody could say, well, Paul, I know some people are bad and some people are really bad and some people are really, really bad, but nobody's really that bad. And so Paul goes through every category and he says, listen, every part of you is depraved. Every part of you is tainted with sin. Sin doesn't only lurk in a certain part of you and leave some part good so that you've got some battle for good and evil going on inside. Sin permeates the whole of our being. We have a sin nature. We are sin by nature. David said, I was, I was conceived in sin. Out of my mother's womb, I came speaking lives. I was brought forth in iniquity. Um, Job says that man by nature drinks iniquity like water. Um, let me say this this morning as uncomfortable and unenjoyable as this may be if you've never come to a place where you've admitted this is true about you then you're not a Christian this is absolutely necessary absolutely necessary. Christians are people who have said, I am not righteous. I am not good. I do not have understanding. I have not sought God. I need God to have mercy on me. Now, there's a beautiful uh, parallel in the uh, Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee is in the temple, and he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these sinners over here. I, I fast. I tithe. I do this, I do that. And Jesus said to the Pharisee that he was seeking to justify himself before men. He was seeking to justify himself before men. And you know what? That's not seeking God. That's not seeking God. That's seeking self-justification. Doing things religiously is not seeking God. That's self-justification. And the man who said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, Jesus said, that man went home justified. That man, by God's grace, learned what it was to seek God. He stared in the mirror of Romans 3. He realized that what the psalmist said, and what the, the interesting thing about this, and get this, please, when Paul's writing this in verse 10 and on, he's just stringing together the psalms and, and some prophecies out of Isaiah. He's saying the scriptures say this everywhere. The mirror's the whole of the Bible. And when we look into it and we see what we are and it's painful and it hurts and I say, wow, I really am that bad and my conscience convicts me and listen to me very carefully this morning. If your conscience convicts you, do not try to silence it. Do not try to silence it. The worst, worst thing you can do is try to take the batteries out. It's the worst thing you can do. If you feel guilty, if you feel heavy, if you feel like, wow, am I really that bad? Let God, the Holy Spirit, continue to convict, continue to break down until you flee into the arms of Jesus. It's interesting that Paul brings all this to a climax 
in verse 19 um, when he explains this is the purpose. God, this is why God gave the law. We need the law because the law tells me I'm not good. The law exposes my sin. The law, the law shows me what I really am. And notice what Paul says. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Now, that's man's great problem, is that man's mouth is full of arguments against God. Man's mouth is constantly open with arguments against God and against the truth of the scripture. And you know what? It may be that your mouth is not literally open with arguments against God, but I am certain that your heart is at times, because my heart is at times. All men by nature open the mouths of their hearts with arguments against the truth of Scripture. And Paul says, listen, here's why God gave the law. Not that you try to justify yourself, not that you try to be a good person and do better and try harder and do more, but that your mouth would be silenced before God. Why does Paul tell us all this? I just want to be as different from the world and just tell everybody how bad they are and put everybody down. Paul does this, and I believe it was painful for Paul. Paul does it because it is absolutely necessary for us to understand this. I want to read to you what one man said. Our mouths are filled with self-justifying arguments and need to be silenced before God. There was only one man who had a right to open his mouth before God and to call him Father. But he remained silent on the day of his judgment so that we might be silenced. I hope you didn't miss that. There's only one man who had a right to open his mouth before God and to call him Father, and he didn't open it on the day of his judgment. He remained silent so that we might be silenced. And when he opened his mouth, he said, the only thing that we have a right to say before the judgment throne of God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he opened his mouth, he said, the only thing that we have a right to say before the judgment throne of God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that now we might open our mouths and say, Jesus, save me from the wrath of God. I want us to think about this this morning. The silence of Jesus in the day of his judgment was the silence that the law ought to put on our mouths though he had no right to keep his mouth silent. He is the truth. He is God. He is the God that gave the law. And he became sin for us, and he bore all of the sinful objections, and he bore all the unrighteousness, and he bore all the wrath, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. And when he opened his mouth, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's what we should have said. And now, when our mouths have been silenced, and our hearts have been open, and we see him, and we see that we've been justified in him, and we seek him, and we understand, and we want to do good to bring glory to him. Our mouths are open, and we speak his name, and we make him known, and that's the gospel. And that's the gospel. I know this is not a comforting sermon. It's not meant to be. It's not a comforting passage. I hope that God takes it, and he drives it in, that you will honestly deal with yourself and say, have I, have I seen myself in Romans chapter 3? Have I, have I come to terms with the fact that that's me? And what I need is I need the one who has declared that to take my place and bear my sin and take the guilt and take the condemnation and take the judgment. And here's the glory. 
when you see that and you believe in him and you trust in him, God gives you the complete opposite of what you deserve. And this is beautiful. God is glorified in man's salvation. Just like God is glorified in man's damnation, God will be glorified in man's salvation because of what he's done in Jesus Christ. I hope that looking at the, the, the truthfulness and faithfulness and righteousness of God here will drive you onto your knees to seek the face of God in prayer. You know, it's one of the sweetest things. It's one of the sweetest things when God gives you a heart that wants to seek him. It's one of the most wonderful things when God frees your soul to want to seek him and praise him and live for him and call on him and make him known. That's the purpose of all of what Paul has been saying. It's to show us the need for the gospel. I want to say this if you're a Christian as we close. If you've experienced this, and I know many of you have, let God remind you of what you've been, of what we've been. We easily forget that. We easily start to think somehow I've, I've risen to a place where I wasn't what I was there. You know, I, I actually believe that the longer we go on in our Christian life, there is a real sense where we see more and more and more and more and more of how awful we are and that we actually see ourselves as, as more sinful later in the Christian life than in the beginning of the Christian life. And there's a rightness to that. There's a rightness to that. And, you know, as my friend Stephen said this week, and I want to leave with this, um, the main point of any sermon should be, if you're an unbeliever, come to Jesus. If you're a believer, come to Jesus. That's the point of this sermon. If you're an unbeliever, come to Jesus. If you're a believer, come to Jesus. Don't let another day, another week, another month, another year go by without coming to terms with this and fleeing to him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Our God, these are um, weighty truths and ones that um, we have only... Scratch the surface of, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict us, Lord, of our own attempts at self-justification. We pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would shut our mouths um, by your law, and that you would open our eyes to see your Son. We pray, our God, that you would make us to see all that he endured for us and the righteousness that we have in him, that you would help us to rest in that and to want to make that known to all those around us. We pray, our God, that you would build us up and that you would give us a great confidence in your truthfulness and faithfulness and righteousness and humility in the face of our sinfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.